Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Donald Moss about his recent book, At War with the Obvious, Disruptive Thinking in Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge in 2018. So first, I will briefly introduce him. Um, Dr. Moss is a psychoanalyst in practice, uh, private practice in New York City for more than 40 years. He's the author of four books, including the one, of course, we'll be discussing today, as well as Hating in the First Person Plural, 2003, 13 Ways of Looking at a Man, Psychoanalysis and Masculinity from 2012, I and You uh, from 2017, as well as more than 50 articles. He's the recipient of the 2017 IPA Elizabeth Young Brule Award for his work on prejudice. He's the incoming chair of the American Psychoanalytic Association Program Committee. Fun, fun, fun. Sounds good. And a founding member of the Green Gang, a four-person collective focusing on relations between human and non-human environments. Um, also, also on a personal note, uh, he is my colleague, mentor, and inspiration. Don, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Anna. So, uh, first things first, um, the book is a collection of essays, and I am interested in what ties them together. Um, the, the title is, of course, suggestive, and you make some of your main arguments in ex- uh, explicit in the intro and first chapter. Uh, one point of departure and leitmotif is a seeming impasse. Um, a, a paradoxical question: How how do we as analysts maintain an opening, you know, for thought, for flux, for uncertainty? Um, in in other words, do we resist? How do we resist unreflexive doxa or common sense, as you call it, and yet draw limits, create frames, uh, norms that make possible theory, you know, interpretation and meaning? So maybe you can develop this for our listeners and also say something about how you came up with the title. Well, let me start with the title. Um, the title is a product of uh, theft. Uh, 
Um, at War with the Obvious was the title of a, show, a photography show at the Metropolitan by a photographer, a favorite photographer of mine, William Eggleston, who's a Southern American photographer, and his images um, are of basically banal, uh, common, often suburban scenes in Mississippi. And what he's able to do with these images, I think, is to um, suggest uh, in ways that are methodologically out of my reach um, that behind the banal images lies um, profound and important determinants which cannot be articulated by way of the image, but just the suggestion of um, deeper determinants, I think is what he might be meaning by at war with the obvious. That is to say, uh, it's at war with the, um, the obvious's claim to be entire. Um, so I think that that, of course, is the working premise of almost all of psychoanalysis, that the, that the, um, the presentation, no matter how thorough, um, inevitably um, is the product of um, warded off determinants. So really at war with the obvious, mean something kind of obvious, which is the, the, the struggle to resist the claims of the surface to be entire. And the surface always does claim to be entire. So, so I don't know. Um, it, it was my way of paying homage to Eggleston as well as suggesting that, that psychoanalysis since its inception has been at war with the obvious. Uh, basically, the, the entire... Uh, theorization of the unconscious is uh, a way of saying that uh, unconscious determinants are at war with or struggling with <clears throat> the obviousness of consciousness. Yeah, no, related to this is uh, the first chapter, chapter one, Against Common Sense, you draw an opposition between sincerity and theory, which was interesting to me because it's I mean, can you can you explain this a little bit? Like, I think both are are mapped in relation to truth, and you you defend theory. Um, it seems to me so. Maybe you can say something about that as it relates to, I mean, what why what's wrong with sincerity? You know. <clears throat> well, there's nothing wrong with sincerity. Um, there's nothing wrong with practically anything. Um, that 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 names itself honestly. And I think sincerity does name itself honestly. Um, but the what's wrong, if there's something wrong with sincerity, is its claim to be um, entire. That is, the moment one says, I am sincerely grateful, I am sincerely... Uh, if the thank you is followed by, no, I mean it, I'm sincerely grateful... Um, it's the, uh, the implicit spontaneous denial, um, 
of something else. The word sincere is like a, a thumb in the dike. Um, it 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 um, disavow. It doesn't quite. It yeah. It sort of disavows. Um, it's an it's an additional uh, force that the obvious employs to um, buttress its claim to be entire. And it seems to me what theory does is, and what makes it in, look, I, I don't mean to say theory is um, immune to the same problem, um, <clears throat> because we can say, do the same thing. Well, that's what you say, but theoretically, it can't be the case. It, it has the same. It has the same function then too. It 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 it's a way of um, using a notion theory to actually dismantle something in a brutal way rather than in a thoughtful way. So both sincerity and theory can be used brutally, let's say. Um, and it's the brutal use of either one that I would say I'm at war with. Yeah, I, I think it's, I just, I, I hear it more common, it's more common for people to say that that uh, theory has this power to obliterate, whereas sincerity, you know, affect or spontaneity is, is, is more linked to truth. And that's the sort of more common move, I would say. But, but yeah, I see what you're saying, that both can be used. The idea that affect can be trusted seems to me um, so problematic uh, I've, I've never really understood how that notion has entered psychoanalysis in any kind of um, uh, welcomed way. Um, why would we trust affect? Um, it would be like trusting party clothes to uh, tell us the truth about the guests. And I think party clothes, uh, well, of course, there may be some partial truth, but there it's intended to to um, dress up. I can't I, I agree. I do. So um, but let's let's move. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the third chapter, which I liked a lot, uh, the insane look of the bewildered half broken animal. That's what it's called. You talk about how, um, we take refuge in the uh, first-person plural we, you know, in order to stabilize the I, the, the many ways that we engage in this kind of um, uh, identificatory mapping and how, how violence ensues when, when our maps are redrawn or something new appears on the scene. So um, I'm wondering what served as the inspiration uh, for this chapter. And you, you provide a very vivid clinical example Two in the chapter, and I was wondering if the clinical example sort of came first, and then the chapter was built around it, or 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 the opposite. The the title of the chapter comes from the Kafka story, a report to the Academy, and this is a story that has always ranked very high for me uh, in, in literature. So I I think that the story was the inspiration um, and the idea of this. Um, ape who is trained to speak 
has always struck me as a, a kind of um, parable for human development. That is, in, in some way, we are all apes trained to speak, and all of us, like the ape in the story, kind of melancholically um, barely remember our native land from which we have been extracted. So, so I, I, I wanted to start with that, and I wanted to to somehow um, present the the. the the narrator of the of the essay um, as essentially another ape um, who is uh, looking around at the contemporary world and seeing seeing so many uh, like-minded apes who are I, I don't know simultaneously being being uh, drowned at sea and clamoring at the gates and i think that so so it 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 also invokes refugees and i think it it i mean to to um, suggest that that people in psychoanalysis are in their way refugees um that is they're pounding at the gates to to be permitted um entrance into metaphorically the first world, and people in analysis feel themselves to be more or less uh, limited. Um, it's kind of unfairly limited, and they want access, and they don't know how to get it. And in one way or another, they're all pounding at our gates um, with this insane look on their faces. So. I don't know. That's that's sort of the general drift of things, and that that one clinical example where the man almost uh, beats me up and calls me a faggot, and then I, a few hours later, have the epithet "faggot" ringing 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 in my ears, and and feel myself wanting to employ it against a gay man I see on the subway platform. It seemed to me. Um, it's a very good example, I think, of the kind of uh, infectious power of um, first-person plural hatreds and how they provide us with a um, short-term antidote um, against both desire and um, all the weakness that goes with desire and humiliation and um, uh, being the in helplessness, um, so I think part of first plural moves, first person plural moves, is to um, purchase a kind of strength that first person singularity can never possess. I wanted to ask you about sexual aberrations uh, and this chapter about uh, where you basically talk about sexuality as a fetish um, and you discuss the three essays. It reminded me 
of my recent interview with Elenka Zupancic, who's about her book, What is Sex? And where she argues, and she's not the only one who argues this, that um, sex is the fundamental antagonism or fissure in being, and that it gets covered over with with, with sexuality or, or normative sexuality. And so I'm wondering if you're making a similar point. Uh, and also, you know, is finally sexual aberrations, is, is this a useful like, what is the final pronouncement? And, or what is the pronouncement in 2018? Because I think I heard you present about this like four years ago or something. And, and then, and then you, 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 were, you still thought there was, there was a usefulness, uh, there was of some use. Have you changed your mind? Uh, no, I haven't changed my mind. I think that, um, and here's how I mean that. I, I think that we all... We all might recognize that um, violently forceful, uh, power-driven sex. Um, we all, whatever we might say about that, we 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 um, oppose it, and would we want it to be cast in the zone of the aberrant? Um, so. To me, I think that it would be foolish to foolish and and reckless um, to um, throw out the category aberration um, per se, and instead of that, I would prefer to preserve the category and examine its contents and to be alert to the very real likelihood that we have overpopulated the category with what were once felt to be aberrations and we systematically have um, removed various aberrant, uh, what would be the word, aberrant um, practices or from the category. But I don't think the category itself warrants removal um, because we, we, we need some kind of word to refer to sexual practices which we find abhorrent or um, incompatible with whatever our notion of um, the social contract and civilization might be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So what would be, but what do we make of this idea that more and more practices that were once considered sexually aberrant are now considered, quote, normal? I mean, doesn't it throw into, doesn't it make, give us pause, you know, to label certain practices, um, whatever, aberrant, uh, terrible, etc., um, when we understand that there, you know, there's a contingency I mean, is that okay? I mean, is and where, 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 where is the, where are the lines drawn? Where are the categories? Who gets to decide? You know, this is the. Well, of course, yeah, exactly, exactly. But this is true. It seems to me this is true. This kind of problem is not just a problem of um, sexuality. I mean, who gets to decide is a very broad question, uh, pertinent to pertinent to all, almost all categorizations. Who gets to who gets to decide what is theft? You know, who gets to decide um, what are the rights of private property? Well, of course, you know when you push the question 
you're going to come down to capitalism and you're going to come down to who gets to decide how capitalist society will be organized and what kinds of behaviors will be permissible and what kinds will be deemed unlawful and aberrant. So I, I think in that sense, I don't think that the sexual aberrations are in a formal way di different from other aberrations, let's say, or transgressions as they are, what's the word for it, you know, categorized across, across um, the structures of civilization. Mm -hmm. Well, if the, according to the Foucauldian, you know, sort of paradigm that it's the sexual aberrations that, that govern, <clears throat> um, you know, norms that it, they're different from juridical categories and, you know, ca criminal categories of crime categories. There, there are self-regulatory mechanisms too. So, well, I don't know. Um, I, I think that's an uphill battle to demonstrate the truth of that. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that the, the notion of of a self-regulating category at all seems to me um, anti-psychoanalytic. Why would a self-regulate a category? Um, for what? Well, the idea that yeah that that these that there are power relations that people are caught in regimes of power and it's sort of yeah right that's right well so we're saying the same thing so the self is not doing the regulating no no but yes the, the self is an object in this in this case right right I phrased it a little bit incorrectly yeah right but I um, but it seems to me that as analysts we're we're our work is directly at the interface between self and object or self and society in which we um, interrogate the power relations. And that's the same thing as the refugee thing. What are the power relations um, that are taking place at the encounter between analyst and, and analysand? And it seems to me if we really were able to um, precisely delineate those power relations, they would be, they would replicate the power relations that take place in one's body having to do with sexuality and also takes place, take place in the, <coughs> the shopping mall having to do with what, what one can permissibly lift up and touch and take. Um, that is um, boundary relations and how are boundaries determined? Because it seems to me the sexual aberrations, whatever they might be, are um, uh, emanate from issues of how are boundaries determined? And once a boundary is determined, um, what kinds of regulated passage can... Uh, are, is permitted to take place across boundaries. And the aberration, at least in my view, would only appear um, when a boundary is being violated. And what constitutes a violation? Well, what I mean to say is that I think we need the term violation. I think if we need, the, if we need boundaries, which I think we do, you can't have a boundary 
without an idea of violation. They're, they're right. We need something. We need some kind of coordinates. You're saying because we can't we can't build a theory. We can't interrogate without without some kind of delimit. Yeah, yeah. I think we can't live. We can't live. Let alone yeah. theory. I mean, we can't we can't proceed without some notion of um, boundaries between us and et cetera, yeah. I mean, it also speaks to the this kind of, uh, you know, the, the criticism of, of psychoanalysis or, or this, uh, some people feel that it's, regu- you know, it regulates and it's normative and others, of course, uh, you included would say that that's the furthest thing from the truth, that it just, it opens and interrogates and constantly um, throws into question its own categories. I mean, that's, and, and then that's, that leads into the three essays again, because that's very, much what goes on in the three essays where Freud kind kind of uh, carves out new conceptual spaces, but then he's not really, it's almost like he's not fully ready to accept them. So then he, he, uh, he's uncomfortably sort of uh, retreating from them, even as he's putting them forward. Right. Is it- I think that's true. I think that's true of all of us. Even now, I think Freud's, I think that's how we know we're approaching a boundary of any kind that is, we become aware of our own discomfort. Um, that that that's that's how boundaries make themselves known. Um, I think, and we we are tempted to come as close as we can to the boundaries, overstep, retreat, overstep, retreat. And I think what, that's what Freud does. Now, he, the boundaries that he's contending with are different than the ones that we're contending with. But that same um, spirit of uh, pushing past a boundary and seeing what happens and then retreating and pushing past and retreating, um, I think this, this kind of thing came up in, in Japa a couple of issues ago with this Hansberry uh, paper about, uh, what is he called, the transgender edge. Um, and it's a boundary paper that provoked uh, a number of responses. Um, Hansberry kind of aggressively crosses a boundary, and then the responses are about the meaning of his crossing. Is this what you call in another chapter erotic thought? You speak about jump thoughts, and yeah, maybe you can say something about what that is and, and why it's erotic. Or maybe we're not talking about that now, but it seems to me we're kind of touching on this. Just to go back to your, what we were speaking of when we started about the obvious, it seems to me that, that um, whatever the obvious is, uh, and whatever consciousness is, particularly in clinical work, it, it aims to be confident of itself. Um, and I think that thought that is confident of itself never needs a second thinker. Um, so I think that, that what I meant by jump thoughts or erotic thought is, occurs when the second thinker um, introduces himself or herself in a way that that surprises the first thinker and reminds the first thinker of the um, 
pleasures and possibilities of being in relation to a second thinker. Um, it, 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 it's a sort of um, interruption of uh, a self-enclosed reverie or a self-enclosed, um, uh, of self-enclosure. It doesn't have to be a reverie. And it, it interrupts this self-enclosure, but in a, not, in a, not in a brutal way or in a, you know, um, an attacking way, but rather in a um, surprising and opening way. And in that sense, the surprise and the openness I think of as um, warranting the name erotic. So then why, I, I recall you saying something about neutrality being erotic. How does that, how does that um, work? Or does it? Or is that something else entirely? Well, well, I, I, I think that neutrality can be, if our starting point in, as humans is desiring, uh, neutrality is a is a is a um, is essentially emerges from a baseline starting point. It's a kind of hum, uh, an erotic hum that is alert to all the possibilities for it to um, eratize. I, I think neutrality looks looks to error to, to looks looks to connect. It, it it's a kind of um, evenly hovering attention. I think means attentive to the possibilities of connection, and in that way, it's neutrally looking everywhere. For it's like a kind of promiscuous. Um, attention, looking everywhere for possibilities. And, and, you know, in that sense, kind of, I don't know if I want to say promiscuous, but um, uh, poly, polymorphously attentive. That, you know, that, that, it, uh, that it, um, it refuses nothing. Um, at least you know, uh, in principle, it refuses nothing, open to everything. And in that way, neutrality becomes erotic. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Um, okay, so moving on to chapter, chapter six, uh, we're, still on, we're still on sexuality, I think, but, but maybe a little taking a different turn. So you, you talk about creativity. Um, I I was a bit surprised by this move actually, and I wondered again how like did something piss you off because like <laughs> to write about the fetishization of creativity and, and contrast it to with work, you know, like is it creativity being this kind of Im almost impediment or like uh yeah, a fetish object that kind of is shiny and alluring, but really kind of potentially empty. It made me think about um uh this new word that has come up, this neologism that I hear, you know, in the consulting room, which is like uh, creatives, like as a noun or a collective identity, uh, which the younger 
people use, which I, I recoil from. I'm trying to kind of not have this reaction because it's just too much. But I really, I, I thought about it the way that, you know, there are creatives out there now. And um, anyway, that's my own <laughs> problem, but with it, but what is, um, yeah, just, is this, is this a provocation? I mean, do, did you intend this as a provocation or is this something that you really, you feel like analysts should be wary of, you know, and what, why? I do think we should be wary of it. I think, I think, you know, I, I write fiction myself and I write a lot and I, I, I care a lot about writing and have know a bunch of people who, who write and some, some who play music. And um, I never, ne- never do I get the sense that the person doing the writing or the playing is um, trying to be creative. It seems to me what they're trying to do is be honest. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to give representation to something, to something. They're trying to represent in some kind of uh, rigorous way something. And in, in a way, it's almost <clears throat> against creativity. That is, the product comes by way of it being true to its... Um, true to what is um, instigating it. And in that sense, creativity would, 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 would represent a kind of um, other than honest um, production. And, and I think that, that um, we don't say of a very honest person Oh, you know, um, uh, who's a very, Abraham Lincoln, he was so, so creative. Um, we say he was so honest. I mean, I don't know if he was, but, you know, just as a figure. Right, we don't say that. We say he's honest. And in fact, were we to say of Abraham Lincoln, he was being creative. In a certain way, we, we would be questioning his honesty. Um, we would be saying, well, we don't want Abraham Lincoln to be creative. We want him to be honest. And, and so there's some, I, I, I believe that the word um, it screws people up uh, because it becomes the, the creatives or I want to be creative or I want to be a creative person. And I think what that almost always leads to is um, a feeling of alienation. That is, I, in order to be creative, I have to be other than what I am. Um, that's where my creativity will be. I, I, it will reside in... Um, um, that's not me. <laughs> uh, okay, that, yeah, and, and it was intended as a provocation, right? I, I, I don't like um, the kind of um, um, another thing that I think it does the the word creative is that it that it um, 
if not fetishizes, it, it hierarchicalizes. You know, we all, I think we all have the possibility of being honest, whatever I mean by honest, I'm not sure, but more or less, we can be honest. And I think that when we put creativity as a esteemed value, we can easily be diminishing the value of honesty. And of the two, I definitely prefer honesty to so-called creativity. Uh, it, you know, it, it connects to an, the other chapter about applied psychoanalysis, I feel like. You know, you seem to be suspicious of that as well. Do you have a, I mean, is, is any of it, do you feel that any of it is good? I mean, there's something fetishistic there too in, in this because it's it's not... What, because transference doesn't function there somehow, or it's not alive, because the object of applied psychoanalysis is, is dead. I mean, it's... Well, I think that for me, applied psychoanalysis... Look, I, I guess if I have a problem with applied psychoanalysis, it, it goes back to what you were saying about theory. It seems to me most of the time, applied psychoanalysis... Uh, represents the triumph of theory over its object. Um, and I don't celebrate that victory. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily psychoanalysis at its best when our theory is able to master its object. Um, what's her name? Um, oh, I forgot one of Virginia Woolf's sisters or wife of a brother or something like that said um, something about science pinning its or, or, or interpretation pinning its object down like a butterfly, you know, like a butterfly, you know, the, you know, like a butterfly would be pinned in a science experiment. And it's this pinning down and devitalizing that I think is problematic about, psycho, about applied psychoanalysis, um, which I don't think ap applies to all applied psychoanalysis. I, I think that if, if the interpretive effort in applied psychoanalysis actually ends up um, opening a space that had previously not been opened, then I think applied psychoanalysis functions like a jump thought or functions erotically. But I think most of the time what happens is that it, 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 it um, closes off further inquiry um, by triumphantly uh, tri triumphantly by, did you hear? By triumphantly um, mastering its object. So I don't know. There too, I, I guess I, I, I'm intentionally being provocative. Um, you know, for instance, with my use of the Kafka story, is that applied psychoanalysis? I don't know. I don't know if it is. Um, but in a way it is. It takes a cultural artifact and applies psychoanalysis to it. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think it applies psychoanalysis in a... Um, where, where analysis masters the story. 
and then right the story on. elucidates a psychoanalytic concept rather than kind of you're not using psycho you're not psychoanalyzing the object there you're you're using the story to elucidate something about within the theory no or to advance a kind of theorizing yes i think they but i think the story and psychoanalysis elucidate each other because i think the story also um opens up more possibilities for psychoanalysis and I think maybe a certain analytic look at the story opens up more possibilities for the story. So I think there's a, it's a win-win um, for both sides. So um, I really we're we're coming up against it. So I I want to I, I wanted to talk about two other chapters uh, that I really loved. One was the. Um, the one about the Abu Ghraib photos, I think it's called On Thinking and Being Able to Think, Reflections on Viewing the Abu Ghraib. So there you talk about uh, what happens when you look at a work of art or documentary photos in this case, or um, and really any object or performance, and when suddenly there's a collapse of the frame, and specifically when the, the gaze appears within the framed spectacle and your look is registered in the framed spectacle, you're obliterated as, an, as a subject but you because you lose that privileged perspective. And so like you basically you're discussing, you know, how an object can look back at you as it were, you know, make you into an object and then you suffer a collapse of uh, symbolic space. I think you say legibility. Yeah. And so this is, this is the uncanny. It's the anxiety producing moment, but then this is, and this is the move you make that I want you to talk about. So then you make this other dialectical turn. You talk about the creation of a new frame after such a collapse. Like what is it that enables the reestablishment of the frame of the capacity to think? So what is it? <laughs> I mean, what, and what is that about? Like that, I mean, so there's this collapse. Yeah, you, you, you sort of see the, you have this uncanny experience and then you're able to regroup. How do you do that? Well, I think you can only do that if the experience has not been traumatic. Um, I think if the experience is really traumatic, you can't do it. Um, so I, I, I think in a certain way, uh, the kinds of experiences that I'm talking about viewing the photos or viewing Maria Abramovich or <clears throat> I think I mentioned in that paper, I think I mentioned um, the little boy in the phone booth. Is that also included in there? Yeah. These, uh, these, yeah, there's a video of this boy who's a drunken boy who can't get out of the phone booth. Um, these kinds of situations, they render you helpless and you know, well, helpless, but it's only temporary. And essentially, whatever capacities you have as a person are are not really damaged. They're just interrupted. You, you, it's a sort of profound confusion rather than a trauma. Um, and I, I, so I think in that way, it's not a big deal to be able to reconstitute. Um, I think that's, that's how we distinguish extremely difficult events from traumatic events. I mean, if the event is extremely difficult and challenging and we, we, we lose our bearings, 
well, okay. But then if moments later or even a day later, we have restored our bearings and can, can look back at the event um, with, with, with some kind of confidence, then we know that the event has not been traumatic. <clears throat> not for us. Um, and and then, then we had this new problem. Uh, what does it mean that we're able to escape the trauma that we've just been witness to? Um, so there's a boundary question too. You know, how, what, what position are we occupying that we have safely escaped while the object of our gaze has not? And then we have a new, a new problem. But also a new, a new awareness that, that we've escaped, that we didn't, we didn't even know we were escaping until we've escaped. Yeah, you, you, I, I, you, you were using the word we, and I was reminded of, of actually one of the things that, you know, you talk about finding one's place among the viewers again, um, locating oneself within a col more collect, you know, a collective, basically, which, which is helpful in, re in reestablishing the social link in order to reframe again. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, and then <laughs> I'm rushing now. Um, but chapter 11 is I and you, which is, uh, you want, do you want to talk about that? or yeah, why don't, why don't you just tell, tell the listeners about it? You wrote down a one line from every session for one year, from every yeah, from every session, right? Yes, and, and so it's a book also. So this chapter is just uh, excerpts from the book. Um, yes, I wrote down one sentence from every session for a year, and then each day collated the session the sentences in the order. So the first sentence came with the first session of the day, the second, the second, the third, the third. And um, I really love this project. Uh, I didn't love it so much initially. I wasn't sure. But once it got going, I thought that these days' collations ended up being, in my view, extremely beautiful. Um, they were kind of evocations of, of uh, a sort of baseline, melancholic, human humming like you know a kind of um i don't know almost like mortality underneath it all and this cluster of sentences how many i don't know how many sentences eight times 150 is like you know 1500 sentences or something um just all of them expressing a sort of yearning a sort of sad yearning not each particular sentence, but the whole the whole uh, group of them. I just found it beautiful, um, like like um, uh, I don't know, it's like Studs Terkel, but but um, but only sentence by sentence, and no no particular person emerges. And I really like the absence of any particular person. It's just anonymous sentences spoken by people in a condition of desire and sadness. I don't know, it's just, it just seemed to, to me to really work. I think it's, the fav it's my favorite project. It's my, fa it's my favorite project because one of the things about it is that it's impossible to, to name an author 
Um, it's a book, but I didn't exactly author it, nor did anyone else. It just kind of emerges like, like it was a very complex found object. So I don't know, that's all. But you were going to say something. Well, I I was questioning this this idea about, you know, anonymity actually and whether because it's titled I and you um and I thought who is the what is this I there doing there? It's it's in the title but it's elided maybe in the in the text. And I thought maybe it's you know it's it's you it's Don Moss it's I mean do you hear yourself because you you did choose you chose and that's a very important part I mean and uh, of this obviously and but but it's yours but your subjectivity I mean maybe that's the one that's that humming sound or that's the that's the sort of glue or the the basso continuo or something that that um, undergirds all of this. Or maybe maybe you hear yourself. I mean, do you hear yourself when you read the? Is this intersubjective? Do you hear? Do you hear the patients? Do you do you recall the individuals? Yeah, kind of vaguely, and I mean, if pressed, I could, but I I, I tend not to. And I know the sentences when I've read them in public with to other analysts. Um, many analysts say, "Oh, my patients don't use sentences like that," um, and you know, I don't know what that means. I'm not making these sentences up. And, um, but sure, the choices were mine. And the I, I meant the I to be not me, but all, so many of the sentences have the word I in them. So I meant that I to refer to the speakers more than to me and the you to refer to me. I mean, I could have entitled it I and you by me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a little more awkward, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right. I, I think I, I actually think we've run out of time, uh, unfortunately. Don, it's been so much fun talking to you and having you on the podcast again. Okay, it's been fun for me yeah. too. I've just I was just going to tell, remind the audience that I've been speaking to Dr. Donald Moss about his new book, At War with the Obvious. Um, Thanks again, Don. Okay, thank you, Anna. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Till next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>